What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. For a mature audience, listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. Congressman Chip Roy of Texas joined the program momentarily. Really excited for that conversation with one of our most principled and articulate fighters up in Congress. But until then, Hunter Biden pleading guilty to two misdemeanors for federal tax violations. The dude did not pay his federal income tax for two years. He is, as of the time being, let off scot-free for his gun charge, if you recall, due to his own tongue-twistedness and, frankly, just his own idiocy. Hunter Biden actually openly admitted that for a period of time he was doing crack cocaine every 15 minutes. Turns out he had purchased a gun during that time. They looked into it. He lied on his background check forms. Long story short, the plea deal that he took is he is let off on the gun charge, so he will be on probation for a couple years now if he abides by that probation. He will not get prosecuted for the gun charge, and allegedly his whole criminal history, I have been informed, will be stricken from his record. So he's going to avoid jail time. That's the point here. The point here is that Hunter Biden, after a five-year, five-year Department of Justice investigation and all the crimes that he has committed both here and abroad, stands fit as of now to avoid jail time. Now, I think what is really going on here is the Department of Justice, the capital R regime in general, if you will, is trying really hard to distract us, to distract we the people, to distract our elected officials, people who just pay attention to these things in general, from actually holding Hunter Biden and, yes, the quote-unquote big guy, Joe Biden, accountable for the much, much more real crimes that seem to have materialized halfway around the world. I'm speaking here, perhaps in particular, of what we discussed just on our last show pertaining to Mikola Zlochevsky, the founder of Burisma, who apparently recorded 17 phone calls with Hunter and Joe Biden, where there was 5 to $10 million exchanged. It was total quid pro quo corruption bribery, allegedly leading to then-Vice President Joe Biden's firing of Viktor Shokin, the Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. That whole situation stinks to high heaven. And yes, it absolutely would, if proven, could amount to an impeachable offense. So that really is what's going on here, guys. Don't don't fall for the trap. Do not fall for the trap here. They are trying to put out this fig leaf that, oh, the Department of Justice is fair. They, They did this to Trump. But, oh, look, they're actually kind of prosecuting Hunter Biden as well. This, of course, in the aftermath of an IRS whistleblower 
from the past couple months who blew the whistle that the Biden administration was deliberately slow walking and obfuscating and just generally gumming up the works of the Hunter Biden investigation. Five years, again, five years for no jail time, just two tax charge misdemeanors. So don't drop the ball. Those of you who follow these issues closely, keep your attention focused on the actual higher level crimes pertaining to the Biden family. Chuck Grassley, again, has this FD-1023 form that he has allegedly seen about this call with Lochevsky in Ukraine. That is the stuff, guys. That's what you want to focus about, especially, especially as the United States gets ever and ever deeper into really approaching something close to direct conflict with the Russian Federation. And we are funding Ukraine with God knows how much money and God knows how much weaponry at this point, we deserve to know. We deserve to know if the commander in chief is morally, ethically, or monetarily compromised when it comes to that. And unfortunately, that is my read of the Hunter Biden plea deal, is that this is the regime trying to cover its tracks and distract us from trying to uncover the answers there. Don't fall for it. Let's take a very quick commercial break. Like we said, on the other side, we will be joined by Congressman Chip Roy from Central Texas. Stay with us. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana. Where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. The Josh Hammer Show. So as previously mentioned, we are just absolutely thrilled to be joined this week by Someone who's been a friend of mine for years. He also happens to be one of the most fiery conservatives in the entire U.S. Congress. He's also just a gentleman and a scholar. That would be the sage from Central Texas himself, Congressman Chip Roy. Chip, you've been a friend for years. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Great to join you, Josh. Uh, Always good to be on the show. We've got so many great mutual friends and great to collaborate with you for a long time and, and, and glad to be on your podcast. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of thought I would start there on a more lighthearted note, actually. So, you know, I used to live in Texas for four years. My concealed carry license is still from Texas. I've still got my seven pairs of cowboy boots. I kind of hang my hat now in Florida, as you know. I would kind of like your thoughts on kind of the rise of Florida as kind of challenging Texas for red state supremacy in the United States. How do you how do you see that unfolding? Well, first of all, uh, yeah, I actually generally joking aside, view it as a good thing, right? And because for too long, Texas was kind of on an island out there doing, you know, the Lord's work trying to lead this country forward. And then a whole bunch of people are migrating to Texas. Frankly, I'd like some more people to continue migrating to Florida, spread the wealth a little bit. I hope a few other states will follow suit, right? And Governor DeSantis has demonstrated that if you lead, people will follow. 
He's demonstrated that people want to actually live in a prosperous place where there's you know less crime, where they're able to actually you know engage in their business and livelihood during COVID and so forth. Um, that's what leadership looks like. And you know, look, Texas, I think, is going through. I'm going to say it as nicely as I can. A little bit of growing pains, both in terms of growth, but also political growing pains. And I think we need to uh, get a little dose of active energy to preserve and make Texas be as strong as it historically has been. I think we need to, you know, have something to energize us into the next uh, quarter of the century. Yeah, I mean, it's inherently a good thing, isn't it? I mean, to have these two large, now iconic red states basically just tried to outbase each other, to outright wing each other, whether it's in the state legislative session, at the gubernatorial level. I mean, I view it, it's kind of like federalism on a mini scale. It's red state kind of meta-federalism. It's, it's red states just trying to outdo each other. So inherently a good thing from my perspective, very much for the reasons that you just said. So let's let's hop right into it then, sticking with the Florida theme. So you have been outspoken for a while now in, in, in your support for, for our governor, for Ron DeSantis for 2024. I don't really want to waste any time. Let's cut right to the chase, Chip. I mean, what is the case from your vantage point as one of the most fiery conservatives, one of the most principled conservatives in the Congress? What What is the case to move on from former President Trump and to choose in particular Ron DeSantis? Basically, I think the short answer is, is I want to win. And I think Governor DeSantis is a winner. I think Governor DeSantis has won because he has led. And he has led in a way that has caused people across the spectrum, built a coalition of people who want to follow him because he is governing on common sense, unafraid, unafraid to take on the, the tough issues, unafraid to take on Disney, unafraid to take on the higher education establishment, unafraid to take on the cultural issues that so many people you know, hide in the corner and say are icky. And as a result, people said, hey, that's a place where I want to live. We actually believe that there is man and woman. We actually believe that we should have our businesses open instead of shut down during a pandemic. We actually believe that we should embrace the rule of law and have lower taxes, lower regulations. We should enforce our borders and, you know, deport people who aren't here legally. Like people want that. In general, people want that even today. So like he's demonstrated success. He wins by a million and a half votes. He wins 62 percent, 62 percent of Hispanic voters, 50 percent of single female voters. He absolutely crushes it. And everybody goes, I want that. So I want to win in 2024 with a mandate. I don't want to be sitting around going, oh, my God, what's going on in Fulton County or what's going on in Maricopa County? Or do we have enough lawyers to go win? You know what? We failed in 2020 on that front. Let's go out and go win. And it really is that simple, right? I mean, I think for folks like you and I who are focused on the issues that matter, I mean, who focus on the fact that this country really is not a particularly great state right now, that many things that you and I once took for granted really do seem to be slipping away. If you are laser focused on the issues like like you are probably more than anyone else in the entire United States House of Representatives, then you have to go for someone who is going to, going to be a ruthless executor on day one. I mean, on the one hand, do you want kind of, you know, the, the Fulton County phone call? Do you want the indictments, the impeachment, just just the Trump show, just the drama, or do you want the issues? I mean, is that kind of how you see it as well, is kind of focusing on, on the drama or the issues? Is, is it really that simple, you think? I think it is that simple, but with a caveat. President Trump deserves enormous credit for yes. having been willing to walk into the arena and take arrows to take on the swamp, to slay the dragon, if you will. And even if the administration fell short on a number of fronts, and it did in terms of some overall spending, in terms of, I think, COVID and Fauci and the, the Fauci tyranny. There's a number of fronts. The fact is, those of us who supported the administration, had friends in the administration, supported the president, recognized he was challenging the status quo. That was a wonderful thing, and he will forever deserve credit 
for being willing to walk into this uniparty godforsaken town and take it on. I think what we're facing in 24, however, is you've got someone who's bearing sort of the scars of that battle, sometimes self-inflicted, sometimes it's because the swamp has been successful. And now you've got a guy who is also, I think, is still an outsider. People say, no, he's not. He was up here. Look, Ron DeSantis was a political outsider, much like myself, frankly, coming to Washington, right? Because you come here and you take the arrows from your colleagues because you're willing to found the Freedom Caucus. You're willing to go down to the floor and say no. You're willing to be on the rules committee like I am and vote against the rule because you're saying, guys, I'm not going to dance to your drum. And that's been Ron DeSantis. It's always been Ron DeSantis. There's no you know, evolution. That's who he is. And now we've seen it in full uh, display in the executive branch running a state. And it's been magnificent. I want that for my country. I want to win overwhelmingly. And I want to save this country for my kids and grandkids. Do you think that Donald Trump can win in 2024 if he is the nominee? You know, Josh, I don't I don't like to answer that question because I don't I mean, look, if you'd asked me in 2016, if he was going to get the nomination when I was a Cruz guy, I would have said no. I right. think Cruz is the guy. I think predictions are dumb. You guys, you can do that in your business. <laughs> totally I, fair. I'm, I'm out here trying to move the country forward as elected officials. It's not a punt. It's just not my job. It's pundit's job. Well, here's what I think. I choose DeSantis because I think he gives us the better chance to win and win overwhelmingly. So I'm going to stick in that lane. And then whatever the voters decide in the primary, we'll figure that out. Totally, totally fair. Let me ask you one other kind of related question. So it was very shortly after Ron formally announced for president last month when I saw this kind of hit. It might have even been that evening or the next night. I can't quite remember. You and Byron Donalds kind of went head to head on Fox News during the 8 p.m. hour. Kaylee. It was with Kaylee McEnany. And, you know, I like Byron Donalds as well. I know you guys are friends, your, your House Freedom Caucus colleagues. But it did remind me that, unfortunately, a large swath of the Florida congressional delegation, your colleagues from this state did go and and endorse Donald Trump. And, you know, ironically, there was that photo in Mar-a-Lago where they were all there. And then it was literally the next day, less than 24 hours, that Trump had this absolutely ridiculous statement, like blasting Florida and like all the garbage that happened here during COVID. It was, you know, I mean, to call that to call that revisionist history and retconning, I think would be an understatement. I'm curious from your vantage point, being colleagues with the whole Florida congressional delegation, how that played out and how that continues to play out. You know, I always want to be careful. You're friends with them, too. You can bring them on your podcast and let them answer the question. Here's what I say. Um, You know, Byron is a great friend, a whole host of the Florida delegation, great friends. You know, Ana Polina Luna, others that that I've been working with. I can go through the whole delegation. Don't want to leave anybody out. The fact is, you know, what we're dealing with right now is a political decision, and it will play out over time. Uh, President Trump has a great deal of influence, um, and I felt – that it was important to lean into my support of Governor DeSantis to demonstrate that no one should be beholden to somebody. No one is automatically coronated. Nobody just gets assumed to be the nominee because he or she was the former president of the United States or anything else. We go through a, a choice, a selection process, and it's important. It will make whoever the nominee is better. But let me also say this. No one in America gives two craps whether Chip Roy or Byron Donalds is endorsing one of these guys. <laughs> What matters is what they think in Iowa, what they think in New Hampshire, what they think in South Carolina. And and look, Governor DeSantis is out working it hard, delivering a great message. Now, look, I'll go out and deliver a message so that people hear it. I'll help you know amplify it. Byron could go help amplify it for President Trump. But honestly, all that stuff's going to play out in the people's kitchen tables and in the in the voting booth based on what Governor DeSantis does and says and how he leads. 
I'm just trying to help expand this platform. Yeah, and you've done a fantastic job of that. So, all right, so let's move on here. I mean, that's kind of now 2024. I mean, you've got a very important day job. It's probably time to start talking a little bit about what's actually happening there in your actual day-to-day work, not this kind of Fox News 8 p.m. hour 2024 stuff. So among the many issues that you have been deeply outspoken on recently, of course, and have been for many years now, I probably should add, is the crisis at the southern border. And you're a congressman from yeah. Texas. This, I, I've heard you speak about this incredibly eloquently, passionately on the House floor, written countless op-eds, essays about it and so forth there. Why haven't we impeached Mayorkas yet? I mean, what is going on there as far as starting to hold this administration accountable for what is the most unmitigated disaster at the southern border that I think has ever happened in both of our lifetimes? Well, first of all, let me just underscore, I was just down on the floor of the House talking about this, um, you know, 200,000 more apprehensions in May. Those numbers will go down because now they're using the one app and they're running people through the ports of entry, uh, using parole and other mechanisms to release people in the United States. We know that they're getting dates to appear that are, you know, years out, six years, five years, seven years, 10 years out. Um, the, the, the situation of the border cannot be uh, overstated how bad it is. Uh, you, I think, heard me. I, I, I last night referred on Fox to my friend Reed O'Connor, someone you know, federal judge, Northern District of Texas, who issued an opinion, uh, you know, uh, notifying the defendants that he was going to upward depart from the sentencing guidelines uh, because the sentencing guidelines were, frankly, way too low for the crimes that were being committed. And what we're talking about were human beings being put into stash houses in Fort Worth, Texas. Uh, the Juarez cartel were running these stash houses with their people. Uh, they were holding people for ransom, notably one father in Baltimore who's an illegal immigrant who was being forced to pay $23,000 by this uh, cartel stash house, uh, or they would, quote, do terrible things, unquote, to this man's young daughter. Uh, that is what is happening in the United States of America. 856 dead migrants along the southern border last year, 72,000 Americans dead from fentanyl poisonings, many of which are enhanced and increased because of our wide open borders. Uh, we've got massive damage to ranches in South Texas, damage to our economy, schools that are overrun, hospitals that are overrun. We're the ones left holding the bag, as I said in the Rules Committee two days ago, when our friends from the Northeast ignore our plight because they want to pat themselves on the back in the false name of compassion that somehow open borders is good for migrants when really it's just something that is for their crass political purposes. Your second point of the question is why have we not impeached my orcas? Well, let me give the nice answer. The nice answer is, is it's, it's, it's complex going through impeachment. It is both political and legal. The political side of it is usually easier, right? The legal side gets more complex if you're trying to follow past precedents, figure out how you're going to set up structures in the, in the future for whether or not you think something is an impeachable offense or not. Right. We have members of the conference who, in good faith, believe that it is not, quote, a high crime or misdemeanor for a secretary to basically be following the overall direction the president sets and to go carry forward that policy, even if it's a horrific policy. I disagree. I think when you are, are charged with securing the homeland and Americans are dying, migrants are dying, you are completely uh, abandoning your duty to secure the border at 50,000 feet. More specifically, you come in front of the House Judiciary Committee. You look at me in the eye when I'm holding a chart behind me that lays out the Secure Fence Act statute requiring that we have operational control of the border. When I ask you if we have operational control of the border, you look me in the eye and you smirk and you say yes. And then later in a Senate committee, months later, you say, no, well, no one has had operational control under that definition. You're playing games. You're lying to the American people and you should be held accountable. And I believe that is a breach of the public trust. I believe that is an impeachable offense. 
I believe that when you are not enforcing the laws and the American people are dying, when you are taking parole authority, which is supposed to be on a case by case basis, and you are allowing it to blow a hole in our border to allow hundreds of thousands of people, millions to get released, that is a breach of the public trust and a violation of your duty to enforce the laws of the United States. And it's impeachable. I'm making that case as we speak. We'll see where it goes. Well, and thank you for making that case. And it's worth emphasizing here that this line that you're you're using, the breach of the public trust, from my perspective, is exactly the right interpretation of the high crimes and misdemeanor. I mean, Hamilton in Federal 65 literally defines it as exactly that. He literally defines high crimes and misdemeanors as a not kind of a black letter kind of statutory criminal offense. It's not U.S. Code Section 18. But no, it is a higher level fundamental breaching of the social contract and the faith that we the people have in our elected officials. So from my perspective, I think Secretary Mayorkas has absolutely violated that. And I'm happy to hear that you agree with that as well. Um, so let's take it to actually a very quick commercial break here. But we'll be right back on the other side of this break with Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Josh Hammer Show. So let's stay on the topic of the border because it's a, it's a topic really that I'm passionate about, you're passionate about. You mentioned the fentanyl overdoses. Really kind of on a personal level, I started to get passionate even more than I already was about this topic when my cousin actually overdosed and died from fentanyl. This was um, five and a half years ago now or so. He was, I think, 29 years old at the time, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. And the cartel situation has really been one that I have kind of tried to take on head on, not just cartels, but kind of just the, the drug overdose epidemic in this country in general. I, I mean, I think we reached 106,000 drug overdose deaths last year, according to the drugs are. I mean, I mean, just for as a point of comparison, that number was literally between five and six thousand in the early 1990s. So I'm not even going to try to do that quick math as to what kind of percentage increase that is. But focusing on the cartels for a second here. I mean, there's any number of tools that we have at our disposal, but I'd be curious for your thoughts on on one thing in particular. And it's not a fun thing to talk about, but like you, I would imagine I've been deeply sober by all of America's misbegotten, moralistic, neocon forays, Middle East. I hate the idea of these terrible, you know, spread democracy boondoggles. But should we consider some sort of limited military action south of the border to just take out these top cartel heads? Is that something that should be on the table? My position is, and would certainly be advising whoever the next president of the United States is, Lord willing, a Republican, Lord willing, Ron DeSantis, that we should have all options on the table to knock the knees out from under the cartels, period, full stop. Everything should be on the table. Now, a strong president may not have to go fully to that level. They might be able to work with Mexico uh, if you're actually using the full force of our government in terms of trade policy, in terms of our engagement, in terms of offering resources to work with Mexico to knock the knees out from the cartels. Maybe you cut off a lot of the dollar uh, flows, the remittances. Uh, There are some other things we can do. But to the extent that military force is necessary, it should absolutely be on the table. There's no question. These guys are at full-fledged war 
with the peace and well-being of the United States. They are killing Americans. They are doing so indiscriminately. It's resulting in the death of, of, of our young, uh, but not just our young. Uh, it's empowering the cartels. It's powering China. It's causing our border to be at risk in terms of having, as we just have seen in the last nine months, 125 people on the terror watch list that have been stopped on our southern border. So who isn't being stopped when you have 1.7 million gotaways since the beginning of this administration? All of these things add up to a national security risk that requires us to use uh, the military as needed. And I would note, to your point, like we are all so quick to go say we're going to have a seven trillion dollar seven or eight thousand deaths, 70 something thousand, you know, wounded and then a egg botched exit out of Afghanistan for a total, uh, you know, and frank, frankly, a failure by this administration. Uh, and we do that, uh, you know, with reckless abandon. Yeah. And we and by the way, Ukraine, we can have a legitimate debate about helping Ukraine to a point, but not one hundred and thirteen billion and not continuing to perpetuate the very war that you say you want to try to end. Like, there's a whole lot of things we need to talk about, about our overextension through our neocon policies, about reestablishing not just America first. That's not quite enough. It's peace through strength. It's the third way on foreign policy that you don't curl up in a ball and retreat, but you also don't engage yourself wantonly around the world. The American people are hungry for that. They want a robust Western Hemisphere, a new Monroe Doctrine for the Western Hemisphere, where we reestablish our footprint, we export the rule of law, we retake control so that we can actually enforce, you know, our friends in Mexico and the Northern Triangle and Central America and South America, instead of allowing China to get a foothold there. Stop allowing cartels to run it, make Mexico a narco-terror state. I'm filibustering, but that's that's the thing we need to do. No, you're not filibustering at all. I mean, your invocation of the, of the Monroe Doctrine is so unbelievably spot on. I mean, I talk about that actually all the time. Is I, I, I think the time is right to to reestablish the Monroe Doctrine. I mean, and that point is only accentuated by this recent Wall Street Journal reporting, of course, that that the Chinese Communist Party is establishing not just kind of a spy listening base, but actually a full scale, it appears, military base 100 miles south of the border in Cuba. Cuba, of course, reprising its well-known role as kind of a Cold War era place for our most existential enemies to put military assets. I mean, if ever there was a time to reassert the Monroe Doctrine, I think it would be now. And you mentioned Ukraine, which obviously is not part of the Monroe Doctrine. It's not in this Western sphere of influence. You know, this is one conflict that I've been sounding the alarm on basically since the get-go. And that's, and that's not to say that I am a, a, a fan in any way of Vladimir Putin, who is a very bad man, and I hate it when I get tarred and feathered as a Putin apologist. I am extremely far from that. That is utterly ridiculous. I actually was just in Armenia last week, literally speaking with some people who fled Russia over the past year because of what's happening there. So I am not a Putin apologist, but I happen to think that the U.S.'s current posture in Ukraine is totally reckless, for lack of a better term. And I don't see any kind of off-ramp from this conflict, Congressman. And I'm, I'm curious what your sense is of the House Republican caucus um, as it pertains to the Ukraine conflict in particular, because I don't necessarily think Speaker McCarthy is with me in terms of what I said, but I don't think he has an appetite for kind of infinite war either. So I'm curious how you see it there. You're characterizing, I think, the status pretty well. I mean, in taking a step back, let me associate myself with your remarks. And look, I grew up a child in the 80s, right? I mean, I grew up hating Russia. Um, I still have massive misgivings uh, about Russia. And and Putin is a, is a murderous thug. I mean, what he's doing and killing innocent people in Ukraine and how he's handling it. I mean, we, I don't know how many more, how many things I need to say. Right. I want to stand with our allies in Eastern Europe many of whom love freedom a hell of a lot more than the average American. Let me just be blunt. There are Eastern Europeans who I would trust, I would sooner trust to make decisions about how to live free 
whether it's healthcare and corporate cronyism or anything else, uh, my friends like Victoria Sparks, you know, she, she gets it. Like she, she left there. Um, other Eastern Europeans, there's a doctor in, in the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex, uh, Kat Lindley, who's a great friend of mine, and she does DPC type uh, care that she wants to try to do because she wants freedom for healthcare. Eastern European, uh, she gets it. Um, I want to stand with our Eastern European allies, but at the end of the day, I want to know if look if they're if Russia's marching through Kiev and heading towards Eastern Europe. Okay, well now my my antenna is way up about what that means for Europe. But if you're fighting over Crimea, I'm concerned about how it's being fought. But I'm not sure our national security interests are in debating Crimea. Yeah. And we ought to be able to have a robust debate about that without you suddenly being a Putin apologist. That's just absurd. And so you say, well, what's our way out of this? Well, stop just writing a blank check that I think, frankly, foments more war, encourages more war, puts more wind in Zelensky's sails to not sit down and try to figure this out. And, you know, unless people are willing to say, I don't think anybody is, oh, we're going to go to war with Russia over Crimea? Is that what we're going to do? I think we need to have a robust conversation about this. I can promise you this. This Republican ain't voting for supplementals for Ukraine. I'm not doing that. We're going to have a serious conversation. If they want to bring a bill to the floor, debate something about some specific strategic asset, I'll listen. But we're not doing this blank check nonsense. Not going to happen. I mean, it could happen if we get rolled to your point. But, you know, uh, we're going to fight it. And that's part, by the way, our whole debate about the debt ceiling, our whole debate about spending that we're having right now, all of that's wrapped up in that. The Warhawks don't get to just make policy in this town because they want to go bloat the Pentagon and have infinite wars. Right. Enough of that crap. Right. So that's actually exactly where I want to take the conversation. So that's kind of a perfect segue is to get into the debt ceiling deal that just happened, which you were an outspoken opponent of. I listened to your conversation with our mutual friend, Daniel Horowitz, on his podcast. Daniel's also a previous guest of this show. And, you know, I agreed with both of you guys. I was definitely a critic of of that deal as well. And I'm curious how the recent capitulation on the debt ceiling, does that make you rethink the way that early January played out as far as kind of Kevin McCarthy going the distance and all those ballots? I mean, how do you assess the Kevin McCarthy speakership and the deal that was ultimately brokered in early January in the aftermath of the debt ceiling deal that was reached just a couple weeks ago? Well, that's a longer maybe podcast in and of itself, but let me give you the highlights and we can maybe do it again. You know, when we came to a agreement, a meeting of the minds in January, right? Without getting into the specifics, which I've been, you know, generally conservative, as you say, small C, about, you know, uh, talking about in details. The fact is, it was about ensuring we had broad representation across the conference that we could try to go execute as a conference united. And it was working great for five months, okay? We passed the, you know, limit, save, grow. It was a good bill. Yes, it raised the debt a trillion and a half, but it had massive reforms that were important. Uh, we passed HR2, the best border security bill we've ever managed to pass. Uh, I was in the thick of both of those things. I gave up things I wanted in order to get them executed, worked with the conference hard to make it happen. And fast forward to the debt ceiling. I was trying to signal, guys, you're going down a road that's not going to go well. And, you know, they cut a deal and it was a bad deal. I'm just going to be blunt. And with all due respect, to those who negotiated it, friends, um, it's not a good deal. I mean, you had 31 uh, Republicans vote no versus 17 vote yes in the Senate. 40-something Democrats, so overwhelmingly supported by Democrats relative to Republicans in the Senate. Now, some of that's war hawks who wanted more. Right. So it is a mixed bag. But the House, you know, we had a more Democrats supported than Republicans. Uh, 70, what, one or two Republicans who voted against it, which is a big number. 
And I, don't, I didn't want to be in that position with all due respect to uh, the speaker and everybody involved with it. I wanted us to be able to be united. I don't mind if I have to vote no, because the ultimate deal isn't going to suit my fancy, but it's a good enough deal for me to say, OK, that's the best you can do in this environment. But I can't vote for it. But that's not what we got. OK, I mean, we didn't get any of the significant policy wins we needed. We got four trillion dollars added to the debt to take us till January of 2025. We took our leverage off the table. And for that, we got essentially a two year spending freeze and some rescissions that we've got to fight through in order to get in the appropriations process. I think that was a mistake. So now we're trying to figure out how to put the band back together again, try to work in good faith to do that. Um, trying to figure out how to make the appropriations process work. The truth is we're probably barreling towards a CR, uh, but I'm going to do everything I can to figure out if we can actually spend at the levels we all agreed to, which were the 2022 levels, which would enable us to take the federal bureaucracy, the non-defense bureaucracy, back to pre-COVID levels, which to me was always the baseline. Do you think that the Warhawks are losing the heart and soul for the battle of the Republican Party? I mean, they seem like they're kind of on the defense right now. But on the other hand, again, the Ukraine boondoggle is still kind of going on with fairly limited uh, accountability or strings attached. So, I mean, how do you how do you see kind of this foreign policy battle for the GOP playing out? I think you, you've nailed it in that I think they are a little bit on the defensive and they realize they're losing numbers and that there's an increasing block that are skeptical. I don't think they can paint most of us, or at least hopefully, as you know, uh, isolationist. I'm far from an isolationist. Yeah, me too. I just want us to be smart. I just want us to use our dollars to make sure we're able to defend this country. I want us to make sure we're not injecting ourselves to places we shouldn't. I want to get to peace through strength. I want to kick China's ass. I want to restore our position in the Western Hemisphere, like I said. Yes, I want to body check Putin. But the best way to do that would have been have unfettered American energy. We didn't do that. We just totally abandoned the field on energy stop our oil and gas production at the levels it should be. We don't invest in any nuclear power. We're not exporting gas the way we could. And that's empowering Russia. And it's asinine. So look, I'm, I'm again in far afield, but the, the Hawks have a still stranglehold on a block of Republican conference because too many of our colleagues just basically will only accept, well, I've got to do it because we need some more carriers and we need some more planes and we need some more bullets, although we don't get many of those things. We get more social engineering. Um, and so I've got to just vote for this pile of crap. That's what happened in the omnibus last December. Right. right. That's what we're fighting now. And some people are going to say, well, Chip, don't let the perfect, you know, make it to where they're going to end up, get what they want anyway. And you're not going to get anything of what you want. Look, if all I'm getting are your crumbs and your, you know, table scraps, that's not good enough. We need transformative change if we're going to change this country and save it. Yeah, I mean, not just in foreign policy, but frankly, in, in, in more ways than just that. So, Congressman, you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to take too much more of your time. But so let me get you out of here with, with this one question. In, in a totally different capacity, you know, you're also a lawyer by training. You follow the courts. The, you're a constitutionalist. You know the Constitution inside and out. If I recall, actually, in a previous lifetime, you were pretty involved in the whole Harriet Myers fight during the during, during the Bush administration. So, you know, just this week, you know, Justice Alito had this really remarkable piece that he published in The Wall Street Journal pushing back against ProPublica and this whole kind of smear campaign that the left has been doing for the past few months against Justice Thomas, Justice Alito. What is your view of that and what is kind of your colleagues view in, in the House Republican caucus? It seems to me that, the, that there's this whole sprawling kind of um, Democrat media complex disinformation campaign to just totally undermine the court in anticipation of the possible overruling of affirmative action and other cases. Is, is that your view of it? Is that kind of your colleagues view of it as well? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I view it on two fronts. One is just more of what has always been the personal and malicious attack on Clarence Thomas, because they literally just cannot accept or or tolerate a conservative black man who grew up in the Jim Crow South in Savannah, Georgia, to rise to the level of the court and speak the way he speaks about issue. And by the way, he speaks eloquently and he speaks uh, with grace and he speaks with humility and he speaks with a vision about what will carry this country forward. And he does so without fear. And I and I'm grateful for him. I do believe he is one of the greatest living Americans uh, that we have. Uh, his life story is one that all Americans cherish and look at with with reverence. And so it is a personal attack. And I, I really believe the left. They get it. They want to tear down anyone who can stand out as an icon of hope uh, when people recognize as Americans. None of us want to live in a racist society. And so you want to extol someone like Clarence Thomas. And, you know, I'll, I'll acknowledge, you know, when you've got someone like Kentaji Brown Jackson, it's okay, great. Uh, you know, another uh, African-American black justice on the Supreme Court. Um, super. I, but I disagree with her, you know, vehemently. And I would not have appointed her to the court. I don't think she believes in what I believe in terms of the rule of law. I wouldn't have voted for a confirmation. She's a radical worldview. Um, but you can you can take that on. If they just want to hit Clarence Thomas on his legal opinions and disagree with them, fine. Do that all day long, right? Go argue against his race uh, dissent, right? Go go argue against some of his great opinions that have been very thoughtful. Um, but no, they want to make it a personal attack. And to your point, that is a part of the radical left's desire to uh, just break down our uh, entire society and advance their radical agenda and to set the stage for being able to undermine future opinions uh, because they know right now they're um, not in the driver's seat and the one institution that they use to transform our society right. for the better part of half a century. Right. And possibly up to and including attempted court packing, which we'll have to see, obviously. But, I, you know, I, Correct. I, I obviously hope and pray that that is dead on arrival in the current U.S. House, which I presume it will be. But anyway, Congressman Roy, you've been really generous with your time today. So you've been a friend for many years now and keep up the good fight, sir. You really are one of our one of our leading fighters up there. And thank you really for all that you do. Hey, you too, Josh. Thanks for what you're doing this week. And glad to join you anytime. Let's visit. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. The Josh Hammer Show. So for those of you who, by some chance, are not already familiar with Congressman Roy, you have thereby gotten a wonderful sample 
of what a principled statesman and deeply articulate and eloquent fighter for all of our causes and beliefs he is. So really grateful for him being in the arena. You know, he's, he's served in so many positions outside of the arena for years. So really great to have him there actually casting votes and trying to affect and alter the course of this country's trajectory for the better. One thing that I want to briefly highlight there is his repeated emphasis, which I also repeatedly emphasize, that you know, Chip and I are we're, we're not isolationists. I mean, you hear us criticizing the boondoggle in Ukraine. You hear us criticizing a lot of these neocon boondoggles in Afghanistan, places like that. But so much of the idiots in the uniparty foreign policy establishment blob just paint this drastically oversimplified and deeply, deeply inaccurate false dichotomy between their worldview, which amounts to effective neoconservatism, liberal humanitarianism, liberal interventionism, just interventionism in general, on the one hand, this reflexive interventionism versus on the other hand, kind of Ron Paul style, all out isolationist, you know, the argument that even, you know, maybe, maybe even like World War II was not justified for U.S. involvement, which I think is a ludicrous position, especially given, of course, what happened at Pearl Harbor in Japan. But the point here is there is what Chip described there as a third way. And there has been a third way for years. In fact, give credit 100% where credit is due here. This is actually one area where former President Trump, I think, got it exactly right. In fact, Michael Anton of Hillsdale College and the Claremont Institute, Michael Anton, who was a former National Security Council spokesperson, if I recall, a speechwriter. He was a speechwriter for the Trump administration in a national security capacity for the, for the, for the first few years there. He had a great essay for Foreign Policy magazine in 2018, 2019 or so called The Trump Doctrine, just kind of laying this out there. And the term that you hear kind of play out is Jacksonian. And it's referring, of course, to Andrew Jackson. And it's this idea that when someone screws with you and someone messes with you, you will respond, you know, five times as hard or punch back 10 times stronger. The Qasem Soleimani assassination in Iran in January 2020 is actually a very good example of that. Iran was obviously screwing with us for years. A small pinprick strike coming way across the top, much stronger, is in line with kind of a Jacksonian America first foreign policy. But by contrast, putting troops on the ground for a an aimless years on end running humanitarian United Nations inspired spread democracy agenda is not. So the point is this middle ground absolutely does exist. Many of us have been preaching this for years and it's just one of many issues where I think Congressman Roy just fundamentally gets it. And I want to just briefly highlight that here in our closing thoughts there. The natural corollary, by the way, of that Jacksonian foreign policy and kind of reluctance to get involved in stuff halfway around the world that we shouldn't be involved in is what he said. The natural corollary is the Monroe Doctrine. It is to kind of reassert American sovereignty or control over this hemisphere, over Latin America, while China, Iran, Hezbollah, all these terrible actors are there in countries that actually matter to our own national interest in a very tangible way. Perhaps no other country exemplifies that, of course, quite like Mexico and the cartel problem there, which we also discussed with Congressman Roy. Anyway, we hope you enjoyed this conversation with Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. Once again, if you're not already subscribing to the podcast, please do go ahead and do so on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us that five-star review. Go ahead and write in your comments. Until next time, I'm Josh Hammer. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Congressman Chip Roy. 
Making a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. Which is like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.